Hey fam, there was some problem with my audio in this segment, so you're going to hear a little bit of static, and I'm sorry about that, but for the most part, I think you can make it out. So, without further ado, here's the episode, and despite the static, I think you'll still be able to enjoy it regardless. This is Champagne Sharks, episode 41. You know the drill. This is T, Ricky Rawls on Twitter. And we have Mike. Hey, everybody. This is Mike at Black Exception one on Twitter. And we have D Mills. Hey, everybody. It's D Mills, the happy curmudgeon. Also known <laughs> at MDMills79 on Twitter. Let's do it. All right. So, um, yeah. I had some different stuff I wanted to talk about, but I don't even know where to start. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about was we were talking off the air about information and how when people just say things, it's easy to just believe it. And one thing we're talking about was memes. And I was saying it's amazing how gullible I am with memes. If you put some memes and you say, like, this is the etymology of something or whatever, I used to be very prone to just believe it somehow. And you you guys were talking about just in general how the written word makes things seem more real. Like if someone took the time to write something down, make paragraphs on it, uh, that makes things more believable. Like how people get sucked in by the onion. And I want to add sources make things believable. Like if something is a quote unquote real publication even if it's just like the Daily Caller or Breitbart, like it's hard to believe something that was fact-checked that's on a professional-looking site is, you know, a a lie or a misrepresentation or sloppily researched. Uh, One of the things that that, um, is common now is having this discussion is the prevalence of, of fake news. And... You know, I know a lot of people are familiar with it, but maybe some aren't about how the how the whole fake news thing came about and where it is now is oftentimes you'll go onto a website um, or a social media site like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or what have you. And there'll be these attention grabbing headlines that say something like, uh, you know, Donald Trump discovered uh, Hitler's manifesto discovered in Donald Trump's uh, dresser drawer, right? And you click on the link and then within the link, there's, you know, five or six uh, paragraphs or, or one of the things that they also do is you click on it and then you have to keep clicking to get the gist of whatever the story is that they're talking about. And then another thing is you'll click on it and it's a completely fabricated story. It's like the inquirer or like, um, some of these other um, uh, fabricated story rags where the story is completely made up, but it looks like it's a legitimate Yeah, yeah, they have some whole sites like that now. Like, the information there was one, is coming from. 
Yeah, where at least with the onion, you know, but and yeah, you know what some of these sites like do? They'll put a couple of real stories on there to kind of fuck with you. Because there was a story that all my friends were sending around about some girl with a fake ass who was doing squats, who was doing squats, and her implants exploded at the mm-hmm. bottom of the squat. And then everybody was uh, sending this around. I got it from like three or four different people, and I believed it. I almost sent it around. And then I Googled the name, and I was, I was like, uh, wait, why does no other place um, um, reporting this thing? Because I Googled the name because I wanted more details. And I won't lie. I want to see a picture of the of the girl. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't find it. And then I went to the site, and they had some other stories, like, um, about a girl who had a waist trainer so small that she passed out. And then... Uh, and that ended up being like a fake story because I couldn't find it. But they had real stories thrown into the mix. And I'm like, these people are devious because they had ads all over the site. And I guess as long as people spread it in open pages, they get those hits on those ads. So Yeah. And that's the thing with the ads. One of the sites that's prevalent in, in that whole thing is a site. And they have really, you know, real news. Yeah, yeah. Names. A uh, world news daily report. Uh, that sounds like one, you know, that sounds like a legitimate news site, right? And one of the mm-hmm. stories that they had on there, uh, I think it was earlier this year, it might have been last year, was uh, a Kentucky police officer shot oh, a yeah, white coal yeah. miner five times, thinking he was yep, black. Yep. Right, the guy was covered in Right. Yeah, remember that? <laughs> <laughs> that story was actually shared um, something like 140,000 times on Facebook and on Twitter. So people were actually yeah. that shit. And something I realized too. Yeah. Something I, I realized too. I a lot of us yeah. like being trolled. I mean, a lot of us like being trolled. And what I mean by that is like we like either being outraged or we like having something ridiculous that we can add a joke to. And tweet about it or whatever, you know, so that the joke or the outrage can get um, likes and retweets. So a lot of times someone will make a fake offensive story. And the next thing you know, you have some woke person on Twitter like, this is wrong and it's time for a history lesson. And it'll do like a 50 page Twitter essay. And the story was, isn't even. Yeah, yeah. The story isn't even real. And they're like, you know, let's talk yeah. about the etymology exactly. of I just see the word slave. And, you know, they'll go on and then a bunch of other like woke people will be like, uh, yes. And they'll have that gif yeah, of the black exactly. girl nodding and clapping in the talk show audience. And, you know, all this performative stuff. Or it'll be like something that, that somebody did that was stupid. And everyone will be like, wow, this person's an idiot. And then the person will make like a joke. Go on. So I think we're very quick to take the ball and run with it because we just want to get that... um that interaction going online. We want to be heard. They want to be heard. We want to be heard. They want to be, they want to, they want to get some attention on them. They want to divert that attention that's going to the troll to whatever point of view that they want to express. Yeah. So they, yeah. So they barely care if it's true. They just see, they just see an opportunity to just piggyback on it and get their own likes and retweets. Yeah. There was this guy on, on Twitter today. Uh, he, he stated that, um, you know, American, 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 Blacks think that they're the only ones who know what black is like. And then he put a couple laughing emojis. And then and then he said, um, 
you know, they, they were walking around with names like Johnson and Wilson and whatever, whatever. And, you know, then, they, you know, it gets flooded with all these, oh, that's just ignorant and blah, blah. Then he says some more ignorant stuff, you know, about, you know, black Americans and whatever. And then I click on his, I click on his picture and I get there and it says, you know, I'm trying to be the world's greatest troll. You know, because we read it, you like this guy's obviously, you know, as follow up mm. comments, he's obviously trolling. You know, people responding to him left and right, like, "Oh, no, man, you need right. to read a book." That's not how it went down. You know, we had our whole history stripped from us, so obviously we wouldn't know if, um, you know, our history with, you know, where country we're from in Africa and whatnot. And he he's just laughing at him, and uh, like you guys are, you're stupid. There's a lot of people that make it. Uh, uh, they get their jollies off on being sort of semi-professional provocateurs, you know. And like you said, this guy put in his bio that he wants to be the world's greatest troll. So he's kind of winking and nodding at you and letting you know right off the bat that he's trolling. But then I think a lot of times with these so-called guys that do things just for the trolling aspect, I think there's a lot of truth to what they well, they believe a lot of what they say. They just want to disguise it as I'm trolling so that they can have a sort of cover so they can have a softer landing. But I think they believe a lot of that stuff. Some people, when they say they're trolling, they're not even trying to pretend that they're lying. They just like they just like the extra embarrassment. What they like to do is like because you can troll with the truth, you know, like I could know that what I believe is offensive. But the fact that I'm going out of my way to throw what I believe in your face and exaggerate it, you know, um, I think they like how easy it is to hit the beehive or strike the wasp nest with Ooh. black people. Like, so I think when they put the, I'm trolling their thing, it's for the entertainment of other people who like to lie for black people. Because what happens is they're, it's like a signal. They say to the other um, races, look, I'm going to put this in my profile and black people hate to read so much or are so emotionally reactive or are so unable to resist their impulses. You know, they're so driven by emotionally reactive that they're not going to read this. So I think that thing is like a there for the entertainment of uh, racists to go on there and see, oh, look, this guy's announcing he's a troll and these black people are still going crazy. So then it makes the fallout that much funnier. In the mind. Right. Yeah. And the thing about it, and the thing about it is that why that's ridiculous and on his face is that everybody falls for that. It's not just yeah. black people that yeah. fall. Black people fall for that. Asians fall. Everybody falls for that uh, we're just in a very um, an era where we argue first and then think critically second. You know what I mean? So you can get away with saying something controversial, even if it may on some level be true because you want to rile everybody up and people are easily provoked. Yeah, that's across the board, yeah. period. So it, uh, it's, it just, it's a form of um, emotional uh, sadism in yeah. a way. You know what I mean? Just because you want to get off on seeing people get upset 
and, and emotionally bent out of shape and hurt by what you're posting. That's a form of, of, of sadism. Yeah, it, it is. I think everyone mm-hmm. falls for it, but I think one thing what that racists like to do is they take something that applies to everybody, but when black people do it, they try to make it something that's uh, unique to them. Pathologizing yeah. or something. But yeah. I also will add, I do think that there's a certain type of black person that... um because we like social media a lot, but we like it in that barbershop kind of way. Like we like the communal aspect of it. I think that's why so many people enjoy peeking in on black Twitter and taking the memes or whatever, because we give it a very conversational communal feel that you don't really see as much in other um, wings of social media. So I think they also know that, with us we could make it pop faster than a lot of other people you know like um once we start talking about something like say it'll be a 200 dollar date because this times i'll be on twitter i'll get off for an hour i'll come back on in an hour later and 50 people are in the middle of a debate about something i'm like how did this become an all-consuming conversation with every black person on my timeline right now. Like, do you guys remember a $200 date debate that was going on yeah. in black Twitter? I don't remember. I started, but it, I it, it, this has devolved into a bunch of broke-ass claims and yeah. uh, greedy bitch claims. And you're just a greedy bitch. And, oh, you're just a broke-ass nigga. Yeah, <laughs> what was shocking to me was how much it overtook my timeline so fast. Like it was to the point people weren't even referring to how it started. Like people were just in the middle of a conversation. They're like, well, I don't do $200 dates. I'm like, what is this person talking about? And someone else said, yeah, but you know, I do $100 dates. And I had to like, do detective work to try to figure, like to backtrack and figure out where it started from. But yeah, so I think that makes trolling us more fun too because it will consume all of black Twitter very, very fast. So well, I think yeah, like wildfire. Black, I mean, a lot of black people are subject to being bogged down into, into the minutia of things instead of looking, you know, we get, we get caught in the, in, in, what do they say? Majoring in the minors. We, we get caught doing oh, that a man, lot. That's a great and, yeah. um, you know, I think, and like you said, you know, we're exposed. Every, nobody's nothing about black people is secret in America. So, you know, people know that you just throw a little thing out there like that and, you know, you can have fun for hours, just like the laser pointer with the little puppy or the kid. Yeah. And one thing I hate, too, is we so want to get those jokes for retweets that sometimes the things we end up consuming right there is so dumb. Like, do you remember when Ludacris had a recent video and he had some fake abs on the video? And it looked, <laughs> he had these, no, I don't okay. There was this video, right? It was a ludicrous video. And in the video, he has CGI abs, right? Wow. A spill from that video came out. But if you know ludicrous old videos, they're always having stupid stuff going on and comedic. Yeah. When you yeah. watch the actual video in context, the CGI abs are ridiculous on purpose. Like when he's walking around, they're not even moving right with his body, and all these yeah. chicks are sweating, are sweating him, and are all over him. And then he wakes up from a dream. 
Oh, come it, on. It is back to reality. But so this whole still, yeah. there's just one still of Ludacris with these CGI abs comes out. And people started acting like Ludacris was trying to pass off the abs as real. And that, you know, he got caught doing something. So there was a whole day of jokes at Ludacris expense. And people retweeting the jokes and everyone trying to get their joke in so that their, their tweet would go viral. Yeah. It was something that was meant to be stupid on purpose. Exactly. So then at the end of the day, like, you know, people finally start watching the video and people were like, you guys realize this is supposed this is supposed to be stupid. Like, you're making yourself look stupid by clowning an obviously fake thing, but it never occurred to anyone to watch the video. You know, so everyone just wanted to get to be the one to get a joke that went viral. Like, like exactly. it became a Twitter exactly. it became a Twitter moment. So there's a Twitter moment of 20 responses and jokes clowning ludicrous for the abs when the video himself was supposed to be clowning himself, that it was a, it was a joke. And like to the original, to the original point, it's like, you know, they read, like somebody saw the first tweet and they read it and they took it for truth. Now I, I got to just jump on top of it and get my little ha ha's. And exactly, you know, it, and, and the next person read their tweet and, they, and it's like you said, instead of going all the way back and seeing the video that everybody's talking about, they're going to, they're just assuming that it's true and, and running with it, which is weird to me. There's a competition aspect to it, too, because a lot of times people will jump in when it's already popping off because they want to get their their clown in, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So they want to go yeah. find their little funny meme to, to put up there, their funny gif and, and post it and, you know, and have people retweet and like what they just wrote. And it's kind of like a competition. So they don't even take the time to scroll up. And, re- and I find my, I'm guilty of this, too. I think a lot anyway. of us are. I've done this. A lot of us are, you know. Yeah. And, I, lately, what I've been trying to do is get to the origin of a, of a viral tweet so I can see, OK, well, what was actually being communicated here before I go and start trying to join in on the comedy? You know, yeah, what I mean? it but works with the us- comedy. It works with the comedy and it works with the outrage. Same thing goes with the outrage. Like, I want to get my outrage tweet in, you know, before this passes. Oh, yeah. My outrage tweet yeah. might be, uh, you know, get a lot of attention. Yeah, so I see that with a lot of like yeah. uh, Twitter lectures. Like, there's a woke aspect of Black Twitter that you know likes to traffic in uh, Twitter lectures. You know, and they uh, will do like a long thread lecturing and educating someone. So, like, so like Piers Morgan, like you know, Piers Morgan knows how to get black oh, people. Oh, don't say um, that guy's name. That guy, I, I don't, I muted block. I don't want to hear anything to do with yeah. that guy. Like, y'all, y'all fall for it every damn time. Yeah. And, and and as much as I hate those Twitter fake hoteps, that's one thing they're right about. Every time Piers Morgan does something to strike that uh, hornet's nest, and the, everyone starts getting riled up and mentioning, like I tried to mention his name. Like I'll go on Twitter and I'll say, "Will y'all please stop reacting to that person?" You know, oh, yeah. but people just can't help themselves. They can't. They can't pass up. They can't help them. Yeah, and that's why I think to a degree, a lot of people they actually like being trolled, and I think yeah. to a because. They want that excuse to just hop onto a wave. And I think sometimes, because this is how I notice it, there's times where I'll point out somebody's being trolled mm-hmm. in a thread or whatever, and people will just play past it and ignore me and just keep reacting anyway. Or they'll be like... That was going to be my point. Yeah. yeah. They want to be trolled. That. Somebody, yeah. yeah. You will put, you and other people will put the correct information on that thread and people will still continue 30 40 50 tweets later 
reacting to the very first thing. And I, there, to some people's credit, there are people that are tenacious enough to where they'll keep posting the correct information over and over again within that thread. It, I've seen that happen too. Yeah, well, that's the need for attention when it comes down to that, because you know, hey, mm-hmm. they see a group of people talking and they just like nobody ever listened to them, nobody ever talked to them. <laughs> they see, they see, they say, hey, I can come and get some attention mm-hmm. in here. Let me repost this thing. Response I've three seen or people four times. Acknowledge. That something is fake. I've seen people acknowledge that something is fake to me, like like, oh wow, you know that is fake, and then they'll still keep ranting. They'll be like, yeah, but you know, a lot of people do think that way, and that's why. So it's like, oh, wait, you admit it's fake, <laughs> but now you're arguing against a hypothetical person that thinks that way anyway. So what do you think, even, the, like, what you know, think the psychology is behind that? What is it about people that make them want to argue? I think you nailed it. I think you, I think you, I think you just answered your own question because you said a lot of people have no one to talk to or listen to them. Isn't that, that's what you just said, right? You said that there's people who just, yeah. yeah, I think you answered your own question. I think there's a lot of people who just don't feel heard and social media gives them a chance to feel heard and every chance they get to feel heard, uh, they're going to jump on it. I'll add something else too from behavioral science. There's something called um, random reinforcement theory or they also call it uh, intermittent rewards and it comes from uh, behaviorism and how it works is if you do something a lot and sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't, it's way more addictive than a predictable response. Like an unpredictable response is way more addictive. So that's how slot machines work. Every time I put a quarter in, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but that one piece of random reinforcement like that, you know, that one time I hit, is enough to keep me coming back a hundred more times where I fail. And they say like that applies to a lot of things. Like, you know, if you keep hollering at girls in the street and one out of 20 gives you a number, that one random time it works pushes you through the next 20 times. Or if you, um, they say email checking is like that or checking your messages on social media you can check a whole bunch of times, but that one time you might get a good uh, response. I think when you have one or two clowning tweets or one or two woke tweet tweets that pop off and go viral, these people just can't resist after that. They keep thinking this one might be the one that will um, get me in a Twitter moment. This might be the one that um, gets a lot of retweets and likes. Yeah, I think I think those likes are like a addiction to people. Mm. Every like, every like fuels fuels the, the next twenty on. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it'll carry them for the next twenty times that uh they don't get it. They'll they'll keep uh chasing it. No, I'm saying there's a performative aspect to it, man. Like that kind of reinforces what you're saying because I notice a lot of times when these people they will literally get on a soapbox when they go on these long tweet sessions. Uh-huh. And it, it seems just so over the top and dramatic. I can almost picture their them audibly saying these things and just being like hyper dramatic, almost like a soap opera or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you know? very performative. There's, there's a lot of performative aspects to that whole, you know, outrage outrage Twitter. 
Uh, one yeah. good example. Here's a good example of that fake news thing. And okay, here's something. Right, this is not some. This is something that's not unique to black people. So I want to make this clear. But it's something that I hate when black people do more. The reason I hate it is because white people can afford to traffic in disinformation a lot more than we yeah. can. Because at the end of the day, they run everything. Yeah. And they have less to lose. Like we they can cut, they can go gloss right over that and keep it moving. Yeah. 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 But a lot of black people will traffic in disinformation and it's like we can't afford to. Like don't because this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this for disinformation about black people. Black people read something in a white magazine about black people and just take it at face value that what yeah. they're saying has to be the accurate thing. And it's like, okay. White people reading this can afford to do that. You can't because no one is out there to tell your story. So if you just start believing every single thing that white people are saying about us, you're going to be, um, you're already behind the eight ball. And the example I'm giving is, have you seen the story about the Cornell Black Student Union uh, and their yeah. supposed, um, yeah. there's too many Caribbean students here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah. Daily Caller, which you know, why anybody would believe oh, yeah. at face value is BME. But Daily Caller did this story about the Black Student Union at right, and it was written by this girl. She's like a Black conservative who's always just trying to do stuff to throw Black people under the bus for the um, entertainment of the white supremacist audience at at um. Daily Caller. Her name is Amber Randall. And what I love about her title, the story is called Black Student Group Complains Ivy League School is Letting in Too Many African Students. Right? And her title, Amber Amber Randall, Civil Rights Reporter. As if Daily Caller cares about (laughs) civil rights. A civil rights reporter is just code for human shield for black for for racism because that's what it means like she's just that's just basically means she's there to say the shit about black people that the white reporters won't be able to um Mm. get away with saying or might be so she's just a human shield but i just love civil rights reporter like like there's a real civil rights beat at daily caller you know what though t you know, I think that's a good. I think that's a good thing that you brought up, and I think that might be something that, you know, needs to be. I needs to be kept on that one because I think you might see that creeping up in other aspects. Uh, I remember it was it was months ago. Uh, Professor Black Truth from on YouTube. He, uh, I don't, I don't even remember the subject. Uh, but I think one of the uh, one of those cops that was charged with murder. Or, I think it might have been. Um, uh, no, that what's that guy? Oh, the guy that, that was raping Holtz, all, the, all the black ladies. In, or is that uh, a different one? In uh, Oklahoma, Holtzclaw. I think it was that guy. I think it was that guy. And like you know, I guess they got uh, another attorney on the case. You know, and you know, he's just some regular run of the mill suspected white supremacist. But now that throw in the in the article that they were writing about him, they tagged him with the civil rights attorney line. He's a civil rights attorney all of a sudden now. Yeah, yeah, they they love they love that, they they love that civil rights civil rights. Yeah, it's a load of crap. I wish I, 
I wish I, I wish I knew. I, I hope, I hope that was the right one. I'm gonna look that one up because it was, it was, you know, Professor Black Truth. I like, I'm a big fan of him. Same, same. He here. does a lot of good stories. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of good essay, a little, a lot of good essay, video essays. Uh, um, you know, it's interesting with that Cornell Black Student Union thing, right? Um, and th- this is what pissed me off because I had got a, got did a lot of threads about this. It ended up reaching Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal ended up doing a story about it, and I would wish I could read the story, but it's kind of, kind of paywall, so I can't um read it. But the Wall Street Journal kept the Wall Street Journal kept on uh, yeah, spreading. Yeah this mis- misinformation but the thing i really hated about it right was all the black people who just took the story at face value but, but let me see what, what the story says right the story says black student group complains ivy league school is letting in too many african students and then um it says cornell university's black students demanded the university start recording recruiting more black American students because the campus has too many African and Caribbean students Wednesday. Um, black Students United, a group for students identifying with the African diaspora, handed the university president a list of 12 demands with one of them dealing with the disproportionate representation of um, African students compared to black students on campus. We demand that Cornell admissions come up with a plan to actively increase the presence of underrepresented black students on this campus. We define unre- underrepresented black students as black students who have several generations, more than two in this country. The group stated in the demands posted by legal insurrection. So they themselves got this from um, someone else. And then, um, yeah, and all this was in response, right? How this started is a black student um, alleged that a fraternity, a, a white fraternity members brutally assaulted him and called him a nigger. So they had demands that called for the frat to be shut down and to give up its house for students of color to gather and whatever. So they had 12 demands. And this is what's interesting about this, right? Now, now when, when this story popped up, this lady, Amber Randall, why did she not really talk about the 12 demands? And why did she put at the end of the article about the hate crime and what originally started it? She kind of puts it as an afterthought. So what she does is... That was intentionally being dishonest. Yes, yes, yes. She, she framing, framing the story in a, in a certain narrative to, to make you think of it one that way. Intentional dishonest. You know, it's really a cynical... You know, because she knows... She knows people are gonna take it a certain way, and that's just such a uh, a cynical thing to do. Yes, and the reason why she's doing it is because she wants to find a way to invalidate the original claim. So instead of being around the hate crime and whatever, so this hate crime happened, they have this these demands, this twelve demands. She basically looked through this thing and tried to find the um thing that she could frame in the worst light. So she makes that the story on Daily Caller. So she misrepresents it to make it say something that it's actually saying, not saying because in no place does it say that there's too many African students. They never say that. What the thing actually says is that 
there's not enough uh, black American students. And it explicitly says, we respect our brethren of um, immigrant background, our black brethren immigrant background, and that they have a right to flourish. We're just saying that we would like more of um, black American students who have been here multiple generations because a lot of the, because the schools are using the um, affirmative action thing to target foreign blacks and you know they're using it like a like a loophole that's kind of what they're saying which is a fair thing to say and yeah atlanta black star which is supposed to be like a a pro-black publication without um you know really checking reproduced the same narrative so atlanta black star says this is their headline cornell university black student group complains of too many African Caribbean students. So now, so now the black publication supposedly like for us by us ends up uncritically repeating, uh, the divisive narrative that, um, the daily caller ended up. Hey, T. Um, yeah. I was, I wasn't, I wasn't clear. That was that one of the demand, the 12 demands is that they wanted to increase, uh, uh, I guess, you know, the the black American blacks that have been here for multiple generations. Is that one of the demands? Yes. Yes. They want now 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 that's really that's really you know, I guess this is kind of a digression, so we can get back to it. I just kinda of got a question because I, I, I don't know, I'm confused a little bit. Is okay, it this started by uh some some a racial incident where some white people did something to a black student? Um yes. What happened was, um, apparently, some white fraternity um, beat up some some black kid, and and okay. when they be- but I, you know, I guess I guess I guess I'm just I wondering know, I, why. I know okay, you know, I don't, and this is a thing that irritates me about black people, to, like some black people. I don't know, you know, when I, you know, I don't find myself generalizing. So y'all, you guys, get stay me. focused. But one thing, yeah, yeah, stay focused. They can't stay focused on the task at hand. That's you know there was a there was a racial uh, violence incident and then they want to come in with all this namby pamby other you know bullshit. Excuse my French. Yep, 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 yep. No, no, no. It's it's true. They should have just addressed that. But I guess what they're trying to say is you know we're kind of tired of a lot of stuff and yeah. this is the breaking point. I hate that though. I hate that though. I say I hate when they use the use one incident because you know what though. I mean I, I bet you. What were some? What were the rest of the demands? I bet you there's other demands were probably some LGTP. <laughs> Wait, I, I'll tell you. My opinion of it is this: we talked about this a couple of weeks back. Everybody, because of everybody, has the attention span of, of of goldfish nowadays. There's a rush to get your take in on something while it's hot. So you, while there's an issue that comes up, you want to hurry up. Yeah. Make your demands, get your piece of the pie while it's still hot, because, you know, within seconds, the next big story can pop up and then everybody's attention will be focused on that. You see, we live in an era of news commentary and news aggregation. Like a lot of these news sites, like especially the black ones like Atlanta Black Star and a couple of the other ones, they focus on two things, commentary. And then they also function as news aggregation sites. So they just 
get as many stories as they can that are interesting or, or are related to racial issues in America and around the world. And then they put them on their website for everybody to read. So there's really no fact checking. There's no background. There's no um, real reportage that's happening. They're just aggregating a bunch of news stories, data mining the Internet and then just posting it on their website. So that's how a lot of misinformation gets out there in the first place. There's no one really fact checking this stuff. They just want to hurry up, get it out there, do some quick commentary before the next story comes out, you know. And so that's part of the problem that we see here today. One of the interesting, right, is Cornell Student Union was the one that originally, um, I'm sorry, the Cornell Sun, which is the student newspaper, they're the ones who originally did the, um, they're the ones who originally did the story. And their version of the story, I think, is actually much more professionally done than the um, Daily Caller version and the Atlanta Black Star version and the and the Wall Street Journal version that eventually came out. The, the Wall Street Journal version was terrible because they just they just yeah. used it as an excuse to attack Black American people and said, you know, yeah. y'all should just work harder and stop blaming other people. They, they never missed an opportunity right? to hit us over the head with that. One. Yeah. So, um, but what? Yeah. No, no. But you know what was interesting is um, <laughs> one of the reporters from the um, Cornell Sun, they actually responded and they said, look, the Daily Caller article is getting a lot of traction. It's based off our article and it's misleading. And you're being you're misleading about uh, this guy called uh, Nick Bogle Burroughs. He was like, uh, the Daily Caller article is getting a lot of traction. It's based off of our article and is misleading. Cornell BSU did not say there are too many African students, only that black Americans are underrepresented. So the student newspaper, and this is a white guy who writes for the student newspaper, even he was like, look, that's not what we said. Why is the mainstream media um, misrepresenting our article like this? And... You know, no one paid attention and it ended up, he's the one who originally wrote the article, ended up uh, spiraling out of control. And just last week, now like a month later, Wall Street Journal uh, was on it. But the thing that was interesting is all these black people, especially like black conservatives, but just in general, they were all just uncritically buying into um, that, that narrative. And they were joining the white conservatives in lecturing um the black students for what this thing said. And the thing, and the funny thing is all you have to do is just click the link to um, the original article to see what, what it says, but no one could be bothered to do that. So this is what it actually says in the um, thing. It says, we demand that Cornell admissions come up with a plan to actively increase the presence of underrepresented black students on this campus. We define underrepresented black students as black Americans who have se several generations, more than two in this country. That much appeared in all these other stories, including the Daily Carter and Wall Street Journal. Then there's this extra part that comes after that they left out. The black student population at Cornell disproportionately represents international or first or first generation African or Caribbean students. While these students have a right to flourish at Cornell, there is a lack of investment in black students whose families were affected 
directly by the African Holocaust in America. Cornell must work actively support students whose families have been impacted for generations by white supremacy and American fascism. They all leave out that second half of the paragraph. You see what I'm saying? Now, not only did it not say at any point there's too many uh, immigrant students, they explicitly say they have a right to flourish at Cornell, which is the opposite of too many. That's saying you have a right to put as many of them as you want. Just don't ignore who... Not to the exclusion of the rest of us. Yes, because these affirmative action things were created specifically to address a specific group of black people, which is true. Yeah. Yeah. These things weren't created for, and I say this as someone from immigrant background, these affirmative action things weren't created for, um, Caribbean, uh, people, African people. They were done specifically in response to, uh, helping descendants of, uh, American slavery. And yeah, I've- interesting. Everyone leaves up, the part that mentions African Holocaust in America, the white publications yeah. don't want to mention that because they didn't even like referring to it. Acknowledging that it was a, that was what it was. Yes. 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 So I just find it interesting that, uh, they zero, you know, I think yeah. a lot of, a lot of black people, a lot of black, you know, like how like a lot of white people are scared of being called racist. Black people got a lot of hangups of, you know, being called anything, too. Like, we don't want to be called xenophobic. And, you know, we're kind of sensitive to this whole because there's been a history of of they're trying to pit, you know, African, Caribbean, other, you know, other black folks outside of America against American black folk. And, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we're kind of sensitive about that. And, uh, you know, so that leads to, a you know, People maybe demurring when you say something like that. Like, oh, you can't really come on. Yeah, exactly. Even though that's not what was being said. She was like you said, that's perfectly what not what she was saying. But nobody wants to really even be associated with possibly being you know xenophobic against you know a black person being xenophobic against other black people from outside of America. It looks real crazy. So yeah, you know, Yvette Carnell, she talks about the subject. If she's been hit with that xenophobe title, and <laughs> she, she don't care. She but you know, a lot of people. A lot of people it goes do. back to Samuel L. Jackson complaining about all the British actors that were getting American black roles. Remember when that controversy yeah, yeah. happened? Yeah, and yeah, I hate yeah. too. This is the thing I, I hate that. that when black yeah, people do. Yeah, so this when, is all- when someone makes one of those complaints, they don't respond to the complaint. They respond to something the person didn't say. So a lot of people were responding to Samuel Jackson, including um the actor himself, John Boyega. Uh, uh not just Charles. Boyega, I thought I thought sorry John, not just John Boyega. I thought John Boyega's uh, response was not as bad as Yvette Carnell made it out to be. The one who's, but you know who had a bad one? What's the name of the guy from Get Out? Because it was in response to the to the Get Out guy. Um, oh, I, I don't remember. I don't remember. Daniel Daniel Kaluuya is is his name, right? He responded. Oh. He responded to um, Samuel Jackson's comments, and a lot of people were like you know reported his responses and, you know, cheered them on. And I hated his response because it was not what Samuel Jackson said, right? says um, he responds to recent comments by Samuel Jackson and what his response is like, um, I resent that I have to prove that 
I'm back. And I've been places where I've been the only black person and, you know, felt like an outsider and whatever. And it's like, okay, that is not, you're answering a whole different question than what um, Samuel Jackson said. Samuel Jackson never asked you to prove that you're black. You know, like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah, like you said, it's a straw man argument, and and people are good for that. You know, as as a means of deflection. You know, you know, instead of instead of saying, hey, you know, you know, thinking up a nuanced uh, response to that, you're just gonna hit them with the, oh, I, you know, you're gonna come in with this defensiveness, and you know, that really don't help the conversation. Because uh, Samuel actually had Samuel had a good point. You know, Samuel had a good point, and you're overlooking that point. Yeah, at what point did Samuel Jackson say he's not black? Exactly, he was more. Exactly. Talking about cultural differences between American blacks and, and British blacks. And so you wouldn't have an American black go and take up a role that requires someone to have a British background or an English background, you know, because there's a lot that goes into that. We can't properly yeah. um, uh, represent their experiences and their, their lingo and everything like that better than they can. And it, I think. Oh, you know what? Though I don't, I don't, I don't, I dis, I disagree slightly, MDM, because uh, you know, Jack Boyega is a good example of that. Did you see? I know, I, th- I think you saw that movie, uh, Imperial Dreams. Yeah, was I it? saw it. I thought he did a pretty good oh, job I, I in think- that. But at the same time, I think, I think Samuel L. had a point. I think probably somebody from the, you know, that you know here in America that understands that kind right. of, you know life and that has that experience has that background basically he would probably don't have to import it you got the real thing here i understand that you know what i'm saying i, I understand that completely so but the thing is but i think oh, yeah i was just gonna say that they got a thing you know i think society at large is with black people we're all interchangeable we don't have you know at, at sometimes you know it's sometimes we're interchangeable and we don't have our distinct cultures like America, blacks and, you know, different countries in Africa and different Caribbean blacks that, you know, we don't we're just interchangeable in, until they want to hit us with the educational aspects of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except when it's time to make um, one group of black people into a model, a model minority for other black exactly. people to emulate yeah. until that point, yeah. we're kind of interchangeable. But that's what kind of what annoyed me with um, how a lot of white prestige media places will comment on these debates because like there were a lot of things cheering um daniel kaluuya's response they were like daniel yeah. kaluuya's eloquent response to uh samuel jackson's you know charge and it's like hey, who are you to say you know that's family business they they're giving their family business you know? yeah, yeah 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 for example i was reading this really good article i mean really good book once but then it was a book about authenticity. And at one point in the book, it says, it reminds me of a silly, ridiculous assertion that happened when African-Americans, um, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson, critiqued um, Obama by saying it was not uh, black the way they were. It shows how authenticity has got out of, out of hand. And it's like, wait, who were you to even say that? Like, you know, because what, what, what Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton were saying was he's not culturally from where we're from. He didn't grow up with grits and cornbread. He was raised by a white family in Hawaii and came to his blackness later. He's he's culturally not the same, which is a fair criticism to make, but it's funny yeah. how... If, if mild, that's yeah, mild criticism. Yeah, but picture... To but me. Picture if... Um, 
somebody. It's not even a criticism, though, T. It's just a statement. It's like a yeah. statement of fact. I don't think they were. I don't think they were criticizing them per se. It was just pointing out some of the but, yeah. But, but picture like you know a, a a white person from a whole different part of Europe, like French, came to um, Russia and was like, "Yeah, you know, I live in Russia now. I get um, I get Russian issues. I am as Russian as anybody, you know." And Someone else, a Russian person would be like, wait, wait a minute, you're white, but you're a whole different culture. What are you talking about? You know, they wouldn't see that as um, ridiculous. But when when black people make the same type of differentiations amongst themselves, they see as like, wow, what an ignorant black person. Like, like, like they should, we should see ourselves as interchangeably black as they see us. And the the hubris of that thing, like, like it would make. Well, they all, I think they only do that to black Americans, though. I don't think they like if you I think if you was to go outside of I don't think you would find white people in England telling black people that they should, you know, I, I don't know, because I've never been to England. I've never watched England, English, British TV or whatever. So but I don't think you would find that outside. Of yeah, America. I'm not sure. Maybe. Are we, or would you? Well, I don't know, because didn't he uh, didn't you just share a story a couple weeks ago where you were visiting uh, overseas um, in Sweden or something like that? And they were saying, well, you're not like these black well, people. Were, these guys- they were making a distinction, though. They were making a distinction between T's kind of black and, and those people's kind of black. You know, they weren't they weren't demanding that T, you know, uh, label himself in the same category as these guys. Like, they, it seems like in America, in America, they want like if, 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 a, if a guy says he's black, they want to browbeat you into. Like I, that's what they're gonna start doing with this Kamala Harris, and the same thing with these students are trying to browbeat them. But here's what here's what um here's what was actually said, right? Like, um Samuel Jackson said, uh, Daniel grew up in a country where you know they've been interracially dating for a hundred years. What would a brother from America have made of that role, right? And then the next day he said it wasn't meant to be a negative slam against black British actors, but he said like. They don't really have the same history with white Americans that that we do, and they don't have our culture, whatever, right? When Kaluuya was um, asked, he responded. Um, he responded, "When I'm around black people, I'm made to feel other because I'm dark skinned." You know, so he's saying that he spent his life he spent his life as an outsider. I've had to wrestle with that with people going, "You're too black." Then I wow. come to America, and then they say, you're not black enough. I go to Uganda, I can't speak the language. You know, in, in India, I'm black. In the black community, I'm dark-skinned. In America, I'm British. Bro, I have to show off my struggles. I just show off my struggles so that people accept that I'm black. No matter that every single room I go to, I'm usually the darkest person there. Just because you're black, you're taken and used to represent something. It mirrors what happens in the film. I resent that I have to prove that I'm black. I don't know what that is. I'm still processing it. Now, the problem is, that's nice. It's an interesting sentiment. It has nothing to do with what Sam Jackson's actually talking about. He never said you're not black. Exactly. He's conflating two different things, man. Your skin appearance, your skin tone, your phenotype is different 
than than yeah than, than the cultural aspect of of being a black American. That, that's two different things. I don't know why he's conflating those two things. That has nothing to do with talking about your skin tone or you know the fact that you have big lips. And even the context of those those answers that he was giving to to the question, he went to two different things. He started talking about his skin, how dark he was. Then he started talking about, um, you know, he gets to America. They tell him he's not black enough, which they're talking culturally. He doesn't have the same cultural cues as African-Americans do. And th- those are two entirely different situations, yeah. man. Well, no, no, you're totally right. And that's what I'm saying is so ridiculous about this, that all these um, white publications were like clapping and cheerleading his eloquent uh, response. That's actually what it says. It's, this is from Vanity Fair. Get out, start. Daniel Kaluuya has an eloquent response to Samuel L's criticism. And then they highlighted, I resent that I have to prove that I'm black. So like, and, that, and this was interesting to me, right? If, and this happens sometimes. There are these stories about British actors taking uh, American roles. They have these stories sometimes about how all these British actors, right. if a British actor depended, uh, responded by making that same thing, he's like, well, you know, everywhere I go, I'm white. Would Vanity Fair say that that British actor made a good point? Yeah. It was oh, good. It was man. a good point. Yeah. Yeah. They would totally realize. Like, it's very patronizing how little it takes to impress a lot of these white people when it comes to a black argument. Like, you know, if, 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 uh, if, uh, Michael Fassbender, you know, responded by saying, Hey, you know, everywhere I go, I'm white. I'm used to going places and people deferring to me because I'm white. Uh, I'm used to having white privilege everywhere I go. Why can't I play a white American? You know, people be like, that's, that's a stupid response to this question. I'm used to being the lightest skinned person in the room. In fact, I can't tan anywhere I go. I'm translucent. Yeah, I'm translucent. I'm paler than most uh, white people, and my neck gets red. So, if anything, I'm more of a redneck than a lot of Southern people. So, you know, the redness of my neck in the sun makes me, you know, people would clown that as the stupidest response. They would be like, this has nothing to do with whether white British actors get on roles for white american actors but it's just funny how his whole thing about i shouldn't have to prove i'm black in response to a cultural thing they just see as interchangeably good argument they're like hey they're probably just happy that he anybody that would jump jump in that crack and get between them and because it was samuel l jackson's statement was really a critique of hollywood it wasn't a critique of the actors themselves so he basically was using, you know, they, they took it personally for some reason. And they jumped, yes. they jumped in, yes. in between to take that bullet for, for them. Yes. And they wanted to make it about the infighting between the black people rather than a critique of white supremacy. Right. So because now they don't have to respond to that. People, they don't have to respond yeah. to that at all. Yeah. They, they use his response and they'll say anything he did was an eloquent response. I mean, it's eloquent to them because, you know, he just managed to say without Ebonics. To them, that's enough to be eloquent. If you're black and you can just grammatically construct the sentences right, you've just made an eloquent response to someone's point in their mind, especially if it's another black person, right? And um, yeah, yeah. So it's like they took what was meant to be a critique of them doing being divisive and dividing and conquering and made the black American, the one who has to defend 
being divisive. And that's the same thing that happened with uh, the Cornell situation. The, the black American Cornell students were critiquing the administration for being divisive and, and picking um, one group of blacks over the other and whatever, and suddenly made it so that now, okay, the black students making the demands are the ones who now have to kind of defend themselves as being uh, divisive. And what was annoying to me was how so many black people fell for it. But like, Kalu- like Kaluuya, they were responding to with straw men. Like, you know, so suddenly when Atlanta Black Star disappointingly parroted Daily Carter's fucked up narrative, like there were things like this popping up in the replies. You're saying, like a black woman responds, I have read before that African-Americans identify with their white oppressors before they accept blacks from overseas. Hashtag colonization. So, so, so wait a minute. So she's saying now that black Americans identify with their white oppressors before they accept blacks from overseas. What sense does that make? At what point? Were they saying, hey, white oppressors, let's get together and keep uh, black immigrants out? You know, like she threw her, she threw her, whole, her whole old narrative on it that made yeah. no sense. And and if anything, there was, because they specifically said the black foreign students, they have a right to flourish. We have no problem with them. We just feel like people are satisfying the affirmative action quotient by um giving it to other blacks and leaving the people who were a victim of the african holocaust in america out in the cold and the white people were like we don't want to discuss what you just said african-american holocaust in america let's make it about you supposedly thinking there's too many uh black foreign students here and all these black people just said that's fine with us we'll take that diversion Pass us the ball. We'll, we'll run with it, you know. And um, what what they did, what they did, what that was funny to me is that all these same people will get mad at all lives matter deflection, but they yeah, did the they same thing to these Black the American students because they all lives mattered the shit out of them because uh, all lives matter. These these Black people, they always know if uh, somebody tells you all lives matter. The first thing they'll say is, just because we're saying black lives matter, that doesn't mean that we're saying white lives don't matter. We're just saying that um, we want people to realize that black lives matter too. So these black American people say black American students matter. And then these people just came back with, well, all black students matter. Like They did the exact same thing. Yeah. They don't even realize yeah. it. So, so I respond. I responded to this girl with that. I, I told this girl. I said, "Actually, you're acting like white people because you're hitting them with a all black students matter when they didn't even say that." And then she got like <laughs> upset at me, and she called me. She called me delusional. Yeah, you know, but yeah, yeah. Wow, there's, there's this going back to, um, well, not even going back, just to put everything in a nice bow. When we're talking about fake news and and the gullibility of the general public. You know, one of the things that I remember is um, I remember reading this book, man, Weaponized Lies. It's by a guy named Daniel J. Levitin. And in the book, he was talking about how um, 
there were studies that came about that showed like the level of critical thinking skills and your average everyday American has hmm. gone down drastically since uh, since like yeah. the 50s. It's just been on average going down. As a matter of fact, let me can I if you guys don't mind, I'll read okay. it very okay. briefly. Um, he asked this question, he says, what has been happening to our educational systems and institutions in the run up to this post truth era? The number of books students read on average declines steadily every single year after second grade. Already 15 years ago, the U.S. Department of Education found that more than one in five adult Americans were not even able to locate information in text or make low level inferences using printed materials. So he's saying we have apparently failed to teach our children what constitutes evidence mm. and how to mm. evaluate. That's, that's heavy stuff. You know, that's, I was, that's I was, crazy. I was, kind of, I was kind of wanted to ask you guys. Yeah. I know this. We can't get into this today, but you know, this kind of discussion brought up in my mind. You know, a, a different question as far as the you know, and that was a good segue to that. Uh, the educational system in America and and why Caribbean blacks and African blacks and you know foreign born blacks can come here and excel even. I think, you know, you know, as far as scholastically above even, you know, natural born, you know, white citizens here in America and the black citizens here in America. I think that would be an interesting yeah, I wonder if topic I... for discussion. I've also heard people say that black students here moved overseas to other black countries, primarily black countries, and, and they actually learned better. I think I heard one guy saying that he went and, and learned in Trinidad and Tobago. And when he came back here, he was way ahead of a lot of his black student peers in America. So there's a lady whose research is very good in that uh, response. Her name is uh, Carol Dweck, spelled D-W-E-C-K. I knew T would know. I knew T would know. um, I actually want to see if we could find her and get her on the show because she, she's uh, pretty good. Uh, what she talks about is something called the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And the fixed mindset is where if you think that, well, this is what her research is about, right? She says she did a bunch of studies and she noticed that when you, when two people do good, if you praise one group on their effort and you praise the other group for being smart, the group of kids who were praised on being smart start fighting to preserve their position as smart. So they start trying to avoid risks, start trying to avoid things that might end up proving them stupid. Like, you know, hey, I'm now the smart kid. If I fuck up, I'm going to lose that, you know? So they try to take shortcuts, they try to avoid challenges, or they try to put down other kids to keep being smart. But the kids who, so a lot of times they end up either stagnating or slipping because they get more into defending that position and then um, if you label other kids dumb, then they start doing the same thing. They start getting afraid of being labeled even dumber. So they kind of shut down, right? So both of those were called the fixed mindset. Both of them get a fixed identity. Like, hey, my identity is I'm smart. My identity is I'm stupid. And either way, they kind of um, stagnate. But the kids who were praised for their effort and for their improvement, particularly like improvement, they're more resilient. So they're willing to keep taking risks. They're willing to fail and publicly fail 
because as long as they're shown to be uh, working hard, you know, they're okay with it, you know? So they're able to keep improving better. They don't stagnate. They do whatever. And her whole um, thing is that we should be praising kids for their effort and for their um, perseverance and not for being labeling them smart or dumb. Like that was a problem, like a special education programs and stuff. And one of the theories she noticed, Uh she says um, somebody built on her research and they theorized that foreign black students don't grow up under white supremacy. Their teachers are black. They see black lawyers. They see black uh, principals, black administrators. They don't have teachers feeding them with these feelings of inferiority because they they noticed that a lot of white teachers they did these studies um on dweck and people building off of dweck they did these studies where they realized that not only the black students suffering from a fixed mindset the white teachers believe the same thing about the black students yeah well, so, well, you've seen, yeah, you've they, seen like we've seen yeah. on Twitter with people who purported to be teachers and educators and some of the viewpoints that they have on black people. So you just automatically you can just deduce what's going on in those classrooms. Yeah, yeah. They believe in their students um, limits as, as well. They've done a lot of studies on it to show it. So one of the theories is that these students are internalizing this fixed mindset, you know, because mm-hmm. right. this this feeling of inferiority Um so so they're saying that one of the reasons why they think the foreign students do so well is because they don't believe that they're um, mm. inferior. They don't have that drilled into them from living in a system of white supremacy. They have a lot of role models that show, you know, you know, like if you succeed or fail in Haiti, if you're or Jamaica or Africa, it's not because you're white versus black. Everyone's black. Yeah. You just See, get kind of judged on how hard yeah, you work. Yeah, I, I get whatever. that. But then that, that, t- that would lure you into a false sense of reality, too. Because then, you know, it's it's harder for you to, to spot uh, the more covert forms of white supremacy, which tend to be more dangerous than the overt forms of white supremacy. You know? Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah, like the, I guess mean? the covert... The overt ones are, you know, closer to home, the closer to, I think, America is yeah. the epicenter of it. We say um, deflect you from the covert. Like, um, what do you mean? Well, you just taught, you just talked about how, like, in, in other countries like Haiti or what have you, it's all black people there, basically. So they don't have the, the, the so-called inferiority. They don't get that sense of inferiority because there's no one there telling them that they're inferior. So they kind of you know, they can rest on their own laurels or they only have themselves to look to. So what I'm saying is that that very well may be true, but there are also other extenuating circumstances that they maybe don't see every day that keeps countries like Haiti in a position of inferiority comparative to the rest of Western civilization. And that is the hands of white supremacy, because you pointed out that they don't live with white supremacy every day or what have you. So I was just making sure to say, well, they do live under white supremacy. Uh, well, just, but they, oh, 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 no, just no. Specifically no. on the educational aspect of the way we're just talking about, right? No, no, no. I'm just talking about the feeling of 
personal inferiority, not about being a um, victim of white supremacy. Oh, I mean, oh, like, I, okay. I mean, like, because because I think that even exists domestically. What I mean by that is, um, before before integration, when one of the things that opponents of integration always complain about is back when we had our own schools, our own um, communities. Ah, okay. We were actually doing a, a lot better. You see, you see what I'm okay, saying. This is a personal yeah, I, I, belief I've system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because because they're, they're saying like, why is it after integration? Well, no, finish that because I don't get it. So finish it out, T. I mean, that's okay. Bring it home. Bring it home for me. What you were just now saying. Okay, like um, Brown versus Board of Education, right? One of the things people complain a lot of uh, when they're complaining about integration is they're saying that we had our own schools, we had our own administrators, our own principals, our own teachers, and we were producing like some communities like Tulsa, Oklahoma. There were a lot of black Wall Streets. People want to use that example, but there were like yeah. a lot of them. There were like Rosewoods. And because they weren't, you know, um, Martin Luther King says, I fear I may have integrated us into a burning house. Mm-hmm. What he was trying to say is by integrating black people into the burning house of um, white supremacy, they were able to um, absorb a lot more fucked up messages about themselves. And you see that in a lot of these um, um, black blue check media people who work for um, all these, you know, these blavity blacks. Yeah, they're always writing all these articles about I grew up among all these white people. They always had this these weird kind of hangups that I think black people who grew up around black people kind of don't have. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like they always uh, seem to have this, this thing let's, to prove. Let's, let's let's try to put it succinctly. Um, one of the things that happened before integration was we were forced to build our own communities. We were being segregated and discriminated against in the greater American public. So we had to form our own communities, right? DWJ. Mike, you there? Yeah, I'm here, bro. I'm here. I'm listening. So we had to formulate our own communities. We had our own schools. We had our own buses. We had our own businesses, et cetera, et cetera. When integration came around, we abandoned all of that. And in the process of abandoning that, we tended to absorb a lot of the negative influences about our, the negative messages about ourselves. Whereas when we were amongst ourselves only, we didn't have a tendency to kind of internalize those messages. You know, we didn't have those. There was no gray area there. We knew that we weren't with them and they weren't with us. And so we had to go about the business of building our own community, just like Asians did and just like some of the other ethnic minority groups did. The problem with us is that we fell into the trick bag of integration and a lot of those other groups just continue to build their communities within this nation. So we don't have that um, nation within a nation that we were on our way to having because of integration. Did that, does that kind of clear it up a little bit? Yeah, okay. Or did I, I confuse you? No, our segregation provided a protective kind of bubble that isolated us from some of the you know uh, influences of having like white teachers subtly you know uh 
programming that inferiority into us that T was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Even though yeah, and that's what Dweck. Yeah, you just have to do the work. Yeah, and that's what Dweck was trying to say. Dweck's research was showing that a lot of these teachers believe in their in that the black kids have a fixed uh, stupidity or fixed uh, whatever that that they're categorically inherently inferior. And you know, she's arguing that these teachers are probably communicating that to the students. Because another thing that Yvette Carnell points out that was a problem integration, she says that, and this I think is a great point, we've messed up integration by putting our most vulnerable and impressionable people in oh, yeah. first as the shock yeah. troops. She Damn, was like, right we should have integrated the principals in and the oh, administrators. Yeah. yeah. We should have administrated. We should have integrated the principals and the administrators first, then the teachers, all the way down to the kids. So then, by the time the kids got there, you know, if they had a wank teacher who was kind of being patronizing or treating them as stupid, they would at least have a balance of a black teacher that was, you know, maybe saying, "Hey, that's wrong." Maybe would check the white teacher. Maybe the white teacher would get reported to a black administrator. Uh, You know, it's a great show with this. Uh, Remember. Everybody hates Chris. Yeah. Yeah. And remember how his kid, that white teacher yeah. was always kind of saying fucked up shit? Yeah. That that hinges on him like being yeah. like she wasn't yeah. she wasn't never being I called like in word, but she was like, I know your home is, you know, must be so broken and this, you know, you know, basically telling him what you know, she's imbuing those stereotypes into him without even knowing who he actually is or what his family life is like. And, you know, yeah, I guess fourth, you know, even though Chris didn't in the movie internalize those the things that she was projecting on him, but I, you know, uh, you know what goes without saying is probably a lot of you know even you know after that a lot of black kids probably did internalize those. Uh, and yeah. the white kids and the white kids too. It, it teaches them. It we're both being taught the same thing at the same time that we yeah, are and, to them. And there's this thing that they took from um yeah the white kids get it and the black kids get it. But there's this thing that um, this could be a whole other show because I've I've read all the research on this and it gets See, deep. I, I, I knew it was going to be a, a digression. I, was, I I did mention when I brought it up though that I thought it would be yeah. an excellent yeah, topic for another. Show. probably say this for another show, but the white people y'all just couldn't help yeah. themselves though. The white people get a fixed mindset of being superior. The black mm-hmm. kids in America get a fixed mindset of being inferior, and then they both develop their own types of coping mechanisms and whatever and it kind of affects the white people too that's why you see a lot of the white people who believe in this fixed mindset they end up being the type of white people who believe in scientific racism the whole iq thing that's why you see those all these american white people very big into that charles mary bell curve thing that's that same fixed mindset from a superior position but you notice it's the same thing they don't their main focus, all they care about is trying to prove that other people are stupid and try to blame other people for why white people are declining, which is what Dweck's research says. We said when you have a fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset, whether it's fixed superior or fixed inferior, you kind of want to blame people. You want to, you are afraid of being revealed as stupid. You know, it gets very interesting, but mm. stereotype threat is... um the field of research that was built off of applying um, Dweck's research toward uh, black people. And stereotype threat 
means it's when people are afraid of being at risk of conforming to the stereotypes of their social groups. So they've done a bunch of um, studies on stereotype threat, right? And what happens is they say when you have um, stereotype threat, just the fear of being proven to conform to the stereotype takes up enough psychic real estate, mental real estate that it creates a cognitive load. You know, like everything you do is imbued with the extra psychic, psychic calculation. Like, you know, like saying like, even if it's something simple as I'm tipping in a restaurant, the white, yeah, the oh, white yeah, person yeah, might just okay. be like, should I tip? Should I not tip? The black person has an extra layer of calculation. Like, yeah. should, I should I not tip? If I don't tip, will it be viewed as me not tipping because I'm black or will it be viewed as yeah. not tipping because the service is bad? The white person yeah. just knows if he doesn't yeah. tip, it's going to be viewed as um, the service is going to think, oh, it must be because of... We said that, what did you call that again? Uh, stereotype threat? Stereotype threat. They've done a bunch of studies. It, it builds on Dweck's fixed um, mindset research and applies it to uh, black students and it creates a kind of... Um, you know, vicious, uh, vicious cycle. Yeah, because well, that's because that's why I traditionally over tip now because I don't want that stigma. Well, I used to. I stopped doing that just because I, you know, damn that. But you know, tra- you know, I used to over tip just because I didn't want to get hit with that stigma of being, which the stereotype is out there yeah. that black people don't tip. But but but, but say, say you're taking a test and you're worried like if I take this test and I fail, you know, it's gonna prove that. I'm stupid. Every that's a piece of mental real estate that's not being devoted to taking your test. You know what I mean? And and there's something called stereotype yeah, yeah, lift. Exactly. Stereotype lift is where um because if your group has positive stereotypes, people perform better. So they do these little cues, right? They'll give someone a test, and right before the test, they'll be like, say something stereotypical about them. And they'll perform worse you know they'll do something to activate the stereotype in your mind extra before and he knows that people hmm. will for like the next hour perform worse at stuff or more cautiously or more uh hesitant second guessing you know and then the positive stereotypes give people a kind of confidence boost and um but this is what's interesting hmm. um those foreign advantages that foreign black people get they tend to disappear after one generation. If you live in America for one generation, they tend to disappear. And then by the second oh. generation in America, they're, they're pretty much gone. So even if two American-born Jamaican people have like a Jamaican kid, by that point, he's performing the same as a black person from... Just seems like the rest y- of Yeah, yeah. Now. And one of the theories is, is that by being here long enough and also being indistinguishable from um american black kids who've been there for multiple generations you know so they don't get any of that model minority uh ego boosting either that might help give them a little bit of a of a boost they internalize that same negative self-image and yeah okay yeah Yeah, so makes sense it makes sense I guess that's why you never really, you know, people saying that you just got to wait for this generation of, of bigots and racists to die off. But, you know, 
information like this lets you know that you know the the next generation has already been educated and trained for yeah uh, maintaining that's why white supremacy episode about integration because a lot of people got kind of upset about me for it and I was saying I don't think immigration is in, integration is bad what I'm saying is integration without getting rid of white supremacy and the beliefs behind it just puts black people closer to the fucked up ideas of white supremacy because now instead of getting reminded of it every now and then when you have to deal with a white person you're living it day in day out from morning noon noon to night yeah. you know and um yeah so so that like you said that's that that's the extra that adds that extra weight on your mind like you said and you know that's why that's why black people traditionally probably have you know, higher blood pressure issues and whatnot than other people's, you know, there's that extra psychic. Yeah. Weight, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's very, it's very draining. You see it in like, a, in like a million things, like, like every single thing you do has yeah, to be added on. This is something I noticed, right? Like when a white person does something bad, they can just do it bad because they're um, just a bad person. Whereas you have to also worry about, Am I am I improving something about black people? Yeah. Is this a sign that I'm inherently defective? Like I know it's like when a white guy cheats, he's just a cheating white guy. When a black guy cheats, it's like damn, damn, niggas ain't shit. Like you know, it's it's yeah, and and even and even black, even black people. That's what they uh, do. Yeah. do it. Like I That's I noticed when uh, Nate Parker was going through his grief, it was all about black yeah. patriarchy yeah. and black men want to be um, white patriarchs, and he. He's a rapist and a patriarch, but then like when Harvey Weinstein is doing it, it's like um, it's like a Hollywood problem, or it's this specific this specific guy. It's not quite saying what are we going to do about uh, white men so much. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that's true, and that's true. Yeah, they mentioned misogyny generally speaking, but they they weren't talking about white male patriarchy, or I don't even think I've read the word patriarchy in this in the mix in this whole uh, debacle. So, you know, you know, and, and they, they use it in a, in a sense with Nate Parker where it don't even fit. You know, there's no, there's no, in no context for Nate Parker being patriarchal. So yeah, it's, it's, it's always confusing to me. When it, and we always have that. We always had a tendency to pathologize things even amongst ourselves you know yeah. we do something that's worse than you know the other groups of people who do the exact same thing i think i've been guilty of that too yeah. you know when i when you hear like damn this nick right here like you know like an example of fixed mindset versus uh and, like, and, like the difference this is what they this is what they found and there's a this big article in, in uh, new yorker about it, or new york magazine about it that uh first put me on to uh direct search and i looked into it more but in a fixed mindset you want to hide your flaws so that you're not judged or labeled a failure. In a growth mindset, your flaws are just a to-do list of things to improve. In a fixed mindset, you stick with what you know to keep up your confidence. In a growth mindset, you keep up your confidence by always pushing into the unfamiliar to make sure you're always learning. In a fixed mindset, you look inside yourself to find your true passion and purpose, as if this is a hidden inherent thing in the growth mindset you commit to val mastering valuable skills regardless of mood knowing passion or whatever in a fixed mindset failure defines you in the growth mindset failures are temporary setbacks 
in a fixed mindset, it's all about the outcome. If you fail, you think all effort was wasted. In the growth mindset, it's all about the process. So if you fail, you just wonder what you learned from um, the process. And what's interesting about this is the fixed mindset stuff doesn't just define black people in a system of white supremacy, but racism, white supremacy is a fixed mindset from the white perspective as well. So if you notice a lot of racist white people, if you ever interact with like white people who believe in um, like alt-right people and who believe in scientific racism, they're the same way. They're always afraid of their flaws getting judged, not being labeled a failure. That's why, that's why they can never admit when white people do anything wrong or have any place to improve. It can only be about, um, you know, what other people are doing wrong. You know, they always just stick with what they know. They don't want to entertain anything that's not something that they already know about. So cultural studies, they hate cultural studies. They hate the idea of having anything to learn from a foreign culture. You know, um, failure defines them. If white people fail in any way, it's something like they have to take personal. The book is called Mindset. It's written by Carol Dweck, but it's um it's a pretty good it's a pretty good read if you read it with white supremacy in mind. It explains a lot about how a lot of it works. Uh, any uh, final thoughts? Um, I would just like for everyone um, to just try and think a little more critically about things. There's a difference between being critical and being yeah. uh, combative. And while I do think that we need to to be more open in terms of our listening before we disagree, because a lot of times people just kind of listen to respond instead of listening and absorbing what's being communicated and then coming up with mm-hmm. a thoughtful reply, um, people are combative. So that's why I say there's a distinction between being combative and, and thinking critically. And a lot of times just looking for a little bit of added context or being a little patient with how you choose to reply to certain things that are put out there can make all the difference in the world. There's no reason why we should just continually be tricked and duped by these these lies exactly. and these fake news stories. When, you know, a little bit of critical thinking, a little bit of, uh, of context can, can, can prevent that from happening yeah. if we were just patient and take our time to absorb it thing and get the big picture so i just hope that you know moving forward yeah we all do I, that a lot more you know especially you know, uh, yeah, speaking I to my people. And, uh, read, read past the headline if, if it's not you know read past the headline just don't stop right. there yeah all right well said so um yeah. yeah i think it's a wrap and we'll talk again soon peace Peace.